part of our sermon passage today is traditionally a psalm or a Palm Sunday text. It's a day when Christians all over the world remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem five days before his crucifixion, which means we're now coming to, we're getting near the end of Jesus' public ministry. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of what's called Passion Week in the Christian calendar. And in John's Gospel, chapter 12, our text today, represents the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. This is where their narrative in the fourth gospel switches tracks. Now, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem may seem like a relatively small and insignificant story in the Bible. I mean, John only uh, gives us five verses. But it's interesting, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the evangelists all associate Jesus coming to Jerusalem with the cleansing of the temple. That's what Jesus proceeds to do in each of those books upon his entry into the capital city. But John links this event with Jesus' announcement concerning the hour of his glorification, his death, and what Jesus' death on the cross entails for the salvation of the world. And as we see in our final point, you can see this in your bulletin, Jesus says his death will achieve four things. It will pass judgment on the world. It will drive out the prince of this world, the devil. It will exalt him. And by his death, Jesus will draw all people to himself. And friends, if those things are true, and they are true because Jesus speaks with all the authority of God, then this astonishing revelation of our Lord Jesus demands a response from each of us, personally. It's plain to see heaven and hell hang in the balance. Eternity hangs in the balance. And if Jesus' death indeed achieves all those things, then where does that place me? Where does that place you? Jesus' triumphal entry is a simple enough story. Our Lord comes to Jerusalem. He gets on a donkey. He rides into town. Lots of people get excited, calling him the king of Israel. They're waving palm branches around, hence Palm Sunday. But there's something bigger going on. Look at verse 16 of our text. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. And at first, we might not understand all this either, but it's essential that we do, that we see the significance, the significance of this event. And really, the title of today's sermon tells us all that we need to know. So if you get stuck at any point in my sermon today, let this be your cheat sheet. Just look at the title. King Jesus comes to Jerusalem to die for the world. That's our sermon. That's this text in a nutshell. King Jesus comes to Jerusalem to die for the world. Now you may be asking, how is Jesus a king? What kind of king? And why does Jesus come to Jerusalem to die? I mean, why not Rome? Why not Bethlehem? And what does it mean? Jesus dies for the world. How does one die for someone else? And did Jesus die for every last person on the planet without exception? Is that what world means? Why does King Jesus die for the world? What does his death accomplish? Excellent questions. And, and those kinds of questions, that's the very reason why heaven and hell hang in the balance, why eternity hangs in the balance, how we approach this text. So let's just go back one chapter and get the context, get the flow of what's actually happening here in chapter 12. Look at chapter 11, verse 55. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And, and Passover, of course, is one of the most important days in the Jewish calendar. It commemorates the night uh, when the angel of death passed over the homes of those Jews who were slaves in Egypt. 
who had daubed the blood of a slaughtered lamb on the doorpost of their home. And because the lamb died, the first the firstborn son did not die. It, it's a picture of substitutionary death. That's what Passover points to. And if you were a Jewish man, then you were required to celebrate this festival in Jerusalem at least once in your life. And so throughout the account, we see these Jewish uh, pilgrims who've come to Jerusalem, pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire. Look at 1156. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. All right, let's move now to the first verse of our passage today, chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And and that little phrase holds great significance. Jesus made his triumphal entry on a donkey into Jerusalem, not Caesarea Philippi, not Rome, not Bethlehem. And that's because the fortunes of the entire nation are wrapped up with Jerusalem in a way that those other cities are not, not just politically, but religiously. Jerusalem is the focus of God's self-disclosure. Read your Old Testament. Jerusalem is where the temple is. And the temple is the place where Yahweh personally meets with his covenantal people. Nowhere else on earth. It's in Jerusalem that animal sacrifices are made for the sins of the people. Nowhere else. It's in Jerusalem where the priests serve. Nowhere else. And during the times of the monarchy, it was in Jerusalem where the king ruled. The king who ruled in the place of God over God's covenant people. So Jesus is coming to the place where the king rules, where God's special revelatory presence dwells, where the priests serve, and where animal sacrifices are made for the sins of the nation. But that's not all. There's a key moment in Jesus' ministry when he turns to head toward Jerusalem and his disciples are shocked, they're scared, but Jesus very clearly explains his reason for going to the capital. Uh, Just turn quickly to Mark chapter 10. This is on page 1014 if you're using our church Bible. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So there we have it. Jesus is going deliberately. He's going to Jerusalem to be captured. He's going there to die. He's going there to be resurrected. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to bring about the first Easter. That's Jesus' perspective on things, and of course he's following his Father's will perfectly in all of this. But the cheering crowds, all these pilgrims, they have a very different notion as to what's happening as Jesus comes into the capital. Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! To the crowds... Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised king of Israel who's going to establish God's kingdom. He's going to destroy the Roman Empire and allow the Jews to rule the world in prosperity and harmony with God forever. This is a red letter day. Jesus of Nazareth is about to usher in the Davidic kingdom 2.0. People are excited. Messianic expectations are being whipped up. However... These people are hailing Jesus as their king without understanding the true nature of his kingship. Jesus is the king who dies on a cross. But that's just a repulsive, blasphemous thought 
to the Jewish mind because Messiah's win. You can be certain of one thing, Messiah's win. That's why they're waving palm branches in the air like it's a ticker tape parade and cheering Hosanna. Hosanna means give salvation now. Not, not in the sense of bring us salvation from our sins and reconciliation to God by dying on a cross. No one's thinking this. They're saying bring us salvation from Roman political oppression. Bring this salvation. But they're actually, though, they're cheering better than they know, aren't they? The crowd is basically quoting a couple of verses from Psalm 118, 25 to 26. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the Messiah. Blessed is he. Because then they cheer, blessed is the king of Israel. Okay, well, why does Jesus enter Jerusalem on a young donkey? There's all these little details. Is that important? What, I mean, was, was our Lord tired of walking? And it's just easier to find a donkey than a, you know, a horse and chariot. No, we see in the other gospel accounts that this donkey is a deliberate decision on Jesus' part. Uh, Our Lord tells two of his disciples, go to the village of Bethany, loose the donkey you see tied up in such and such a place, and if anyone hassles you, just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll, we'll send it back to you shortly. It's all being sovereignly orchestrated because Jesus riding a donkey fulfills a prophecy made by the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years before. This is very deliberate on our Lord's part. Uh, Again, turn to page uh, page 953. This is Zechariah chapter 9. This is worthwhile looking at. Zechariah 9, 9 to 11, page 953. God spoke to the prophet to give a picture of what it would look like when the promised king would come to Zion or Jerusalem. Zion is Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So this picture is definitely of a king, a righteous king, a victorious king, whose rule extends to the ends of the earth. A king who brings peace to all the nations of the world and freedom for those in prison. But it's an unexpected kind of king. His righteousness and victory doesn't appear as strength. It's not in the, in the form of brute power. He comes lowly, the passage says, and riding on a donkey. Folks, you, you can't go into battle on a donkey. right? You can't, you can't destroy the Roman Empire on a donkey. You can't fight your way to the throne, killing all the enemies in your way, cutting off Pontius Pilate's head, and then claim your your rightful place as the king of Israel if you're riding on a donkey. But that's because King Jesus proclaims peace to the nations and not war. And of course, Jesus' lowliness doesn't mean he won't be victorious in establishing his rule. As the prophecy says, his rule will extend to the ends of the earth his, his lowliness and riding a donkey doesn't jeopardize that one bit. In fact, King Jesus' lowliness is the very means by which his kingdom is established. And peace is brought to the world and the prisoners are set free. Look again at verse 11 of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So do you see? It's because of the blood of the covenant that all of this is going to happen. And what does Jesus say on the night that he's crucified during the Passover meal? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. His own death will be the new blood of the covenant. Jesus saw his own death as the ultimate atoning sacrifice for sin. An atoning sacrifice that would free people from the pit 
an atoning sacrifice that would uh, bring peace to the world and establish an everlasting relationship between God and all those who trust in it. This is why King Jesus comes lowly and riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. This is why King Jesus doesn't come into Jerusalem on a war horse. He hasn't come to destroy his enemies. He's come to die for them and to offer them forgiveness and salvation. So the crowds are right. They're right to praise Jesus as king. That's who he is. They're right to cry out, Hosanna, give salvation now. That's what Jesus has come to do. And yes, they're right to expect that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom. He certainly does. But where they're 100% dead wrong is how Jesus will accomplish all of this. And that goes with the disciples too. The account finishes with them being confused. Look at verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Jesus is the king who comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus is the Messiah who talks about dying. How does that all fit together? They had no clue. I bet, I wouldn't be surprised, just using our sanctified imagination, that some of them tried to talk our Lord out of this. Didn't you just see Peter trying to talk Jesus out of this approach? Rabbi, uh, the, the optics of you entering into Jerusalem on a stinking donkey. Man, that's terrible. You look like a wimp. Right? At the very least, you should be walking into the capital under your own power, brandishing a broadsword or something. 16b. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. It's only after Jesus was glorified in his death and resurrection that the disciples remembered the Old Testament prophecy like the one from Zechariah we read. And, and, and they saw how the, those puzzle pieces all fit together. And so the king of Israel, he takes deliberate steps to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling rather different Old Testament promises than what the people were expecting. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, the raising of Lazarus, went out to meet him. And the Pharisees are having a fit. Jesus, this, this man could easily start a revolution. They're, they're seeing the nation's political stability becoming more and more fragile with every passing moment here. The people are calling out, Hosanna, blessed is the king. And like, you know, look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And the apostle John, he sees the irony of that statement, the whole world, and he deliberately then builds on it. Because by the whole world, the Pharisees mean everyone, everyone, all the Jews in the Jerusalem area, including the Jewish pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. But the word world in John's gospel commonly refers to people everywhere without racial distinction, but who are lost and who are in rebellion against God. And nothing so confirms that the whole world is even now beginning to come to Jesus as the visit of these Greeks we read of in verse 20. Greek Gentiles, non-Jews. And the whole world gone after Jesus, is embodied in these Greeks who now seek him. And their request to meet with Jesus triggers our Lord's announcement that the hour has come when he is glorified and draws all people to himself. And this moves us now to our second point, and this is deep, glorious stuff. Point number two, King Jesus predicts the hour of his glorification. That is, the appointed time for his death, resurrection, and exaltation. Look at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, 
who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. We'd like to converse with him. We'd like to have an interview with Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Nothing that we know. Uh, strictly speaking, Jesus doesn't respond to their request. But it's not their request that's important. It's the situation that their request represents. Verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Boy, if I had, if I had symbols up here, I'd be bashing like crazy. The Apostle John certainly. Do you see how he's framed this? This is amazing. At, at the very moment when the Jewish authorities are, are turning virulently against Jesus, Gentiles are starting to clamor for his attention. The climactic hour has dawned. The appointed time for his death and resurrection and exaltation when Jesus will draw all people to himself. Beloved, up to this point, in John's Gospel, the hour of Jesus' glorification has always been a future prospect. Think of, think of the wedding at Cana in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Chapter 7, verse 30. They tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20. No one sees him because his hour had not yet come. But now, dramatically, the request of these Greek Gentiles actually changes the parameters. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And from this point, until our Lord's bloody passion, five days hence, Jesus' hour is now an immediate prospect. This this is where the narrative in John's Gospel switches tracks. 12.27 Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So do you see? It's an immediate prospect. Chapter 13, verse 1 It was just before the Passover, the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come. For him to leave this world and go to the Father. Chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked upward towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So the hour has come. Okay, back to chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be, what? Glorified. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about crucifixion. He's talking about his own shame-ridden death. But he says, glorified. And that's because Jesus' glorification and his hour, the hour of his death, are one and the same. Brothers and sisters, where is God's glory most manifested? Did you see the pictures that were released this week from the James Webb Space Telescope? Weren't they astonishing? The, the incredible expanse of deep space with its trillions of stars, innumerable galaxies. But that is not where God's glory is most manifested. It's in God's goodness when Jesus is glorified. When Jesus is lifted up on a cross, displaying God's glory in the shame and the degradation and the brutality and sacrifice of his eternal son for sin. The most spectacular display of God's glory this world has ever, ever seen is in a bloody instrument of torture. 1223. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, 
unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, unless that happens, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And this verse follows the same theme Jesus began in verse 23, the glorification, the death of the Son of Man. It's not just a random agricultural rabbit trail. This is intimately connected. This illustrates the principle that death is the necessary condition for the generation of life. It applies uniquely to Jesus, of course, but it also applies to Christians and actually how we're to live for the Lord. And truly, it's one of the most important lessons of Christian discipleship in the whole New Testament. If you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus, what he expects of us, this is the text. Let's just see how it applies to Jesus first, though. For for a seed to be effective, to do what a seed is intended to do, it must die. Otherwise, it only remains a single seed. So each spring, I'm looking for seed death on a massive scale in my front yard. When I'm out there in my bathrobe and flip-flops and coffee, my hose is praying, I'm I'm yelling at the sky, let death rain. I'm not doing that. That'd be insane. But I'm thinking it in my mind. New life, green, lush grass comes through death and only through death. A kernel of wheat or a grass seed is sown in the ground and it dies and it brings forth a rich, rich harvest. And And just like the seed whose death is the germination of life for a great crop, so Jesus' death will have the same effect. The one seed dies, and then there's a great harvest, a great crop brought in through that death. Jesus, that single seed, is going to draw all people, the many seeds, to himself when he dies, when he's glorified. But if the principle modeled here by the seed, that death is a necessary condition for the generation of life, if that's peculiarly applicable to Jesus Christ, in a slightly different way, it's actually the model for all of Christian living. Look at verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And beloved, that's that's the sort of verse that we need to nail down. We need to understand every single bit of that. Jesus is talking about a fundamental preference here. My life, my will, loving the world, or him. My life, my will, loving the world, or Jesus. There's no getting around it. It cannot be otherwise, because to love one's own life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty. It's a fundamental denial of uh, God's rights. We speak of our own rights all the time. I think of my own rights all the time. What about God's rights? Jesus says such a person loses their life. They perish eternally. My life, my will, loving the world. By contrast, the one who hates their life will keep it. For eternal life. That means Jesus' followers sacrificially give up something of value for the sake of something that is of infinitely greater value. Jesus and eternal life. Christian, we choose not to pander to self-interest. We deny ourselves, or to use another of Jesus' metaphors, we take up our cross daily. Daily. Mark 8.34. Or to use the seed analogy here, we die. Death to reputation. Death to our autonomous plans and goals in life. Death to our family. Death to money. Death to career. Death to artistic aspirations. Death to real estate ambitions. Death to ministry aspirations. Everything, we die to everything. At the deepest level of our being, we decline to make ourselves the focus 
of our interest and perception, thereby dying. We die. The Christian disciple, there is a painful renunciation of self-interest and a wholehearted turn to Jesus' interests. We live for Jesus. Our first allegiance is to Jesus. Not my will, Jesus, but your will be done. That's our watchword. So, loved one, be encouraged. If following the way of Jesus in daily death to self and ambition is more important than your own existence, you will save your life. That's what our Lord promises. But be warned, if your own existence, your own life in this world, having your own will, your own prioritizations, are more important than Jesus, you will lose both Jesus and your life. John 12, 26. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Hear this. Jesus' promise is that the Father will vindicate his disciples' act of self-sacrifice, your act of self-sacrifice, just as he will fully vindicate the self-sacrifice of Jesus himself. That's verse 26, distilled to its essence. I'm going to say it again because it's, this is the Christian life. God the Father will vindicate the Christian's act of self-sacrifice, all of life, as just as he will fully vindicate the self-sacrifice of Jesus himself. That's, that's the contrast. That's the, that's the comparison. But self must be replaced with another. Our endless, shameless focus on self, me, 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 must be displaced by my focus on Jesus Christ. And that change of focus ensures both death and glorification. Because Jesus, the Jesus who says, where I am, my servant also will be, he says that, and Jesus is on his way to the cross and to his Father. You're seeing both. Did you catch that? you see how that works? I mean, <laughs> verse 26 isn't just a promise of heaven, beloved. It's a promise of death. That's what, if we're Christians, that's what each of us has signed up for. Death. And this isn't some scandalous doctrine that the church keeps hidden in the closet and then we wheel it out only once the person is good and baptized. Surprise, Angela! <laughs> Jesus promises you death. Jesus puts it out there in the open for all to see and for us to embrace. And he sets the example himself. Christian fruitfulness is costly. It only comes through death. Just as Jesus' crucifixion is the path to his glorification, so the believer's death to self is the path to vindication. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And, brothers and sisters, Jesus says this in his last public address in John's Gospel. This is the last thing he says. It's that important. Death to self. Death to self. Beloved, this is what it means. This is what it means to be a Christian disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew it would be hard. I mean, I, I can say I can preach this up here with kind of a straight face, and it's like, wow, has John has John mastered this? Like, no, not at all. This is hard, hard. It's why Jesus says in, in Matthew seven fourteen, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is hard. It's hard to die. It's hard to hate your life in this world. It's hard to follow Jesus on the road that leads to the cross. I, sh I shrink from that. It's hard to take on the role of a servant in a world of power. But it's also glorious. Right? So don't miss this. 
the glory Jesus promises compensates for the hardness of it all. In fact, the glory turns the hardness into the most significant life imaginable. So don't miss the glory and the overflowing joy in this hard life of being a Christian. We die, we hate our lives in this world, we follow Jesus on the Calvary Road, we become servants, and when we do, what we find is that we bear much fruit. We keep our lives for eternal life, we join Jesus where he is in glory, and the Father honors us. I'm 45 years old. What do I have left? 30 30 years, maybe? 25? Two years? This is the way I want to live out my remaining time. God's grace assisting me. This is the way I want to spend eternity. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling us, my dying for your salvation is my design for your imitation. We need to pray for grace to understand this, to live like this. But before Jesus' disciples can follow him in this way, Jesus himself must die and be glorified. And as wonderful as the ultimate glorification of this hour will be, Jesus first must face the cross. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And that verb in the Greek is very strong. It signifies revulsion and horror, anxiety, agitation. Now my soul is troubled. Jesus is a man. He is the God-man with the weight of the world on his shoulders, with the weight of heaven and hell on his shoulders. Jesus is facing more than death and sadness and physical agony at Calvary. He is facing God-forsakenness. He's facing divine wrath. Deeply troubled them, in horror, with revulsion, Jesus asks himself, what shall I say? And along with several commentators, I would take the next sentence, not as a question, as the NIV does, or as the ESV does, but as a prayer. Not a question, it's a prayer. Father, save me from this hour. And that prayer fully reveals Jesus' agony. It's a lot like his prayer in Gethsemane, isn't it? Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Father, save me from this hour. But Jesus can no sooner pray to be spared this hour, to escape this cup, than he must face again his unswerving commitment to adhere to his Father's will. Always remember, you see this in all the Gospels, but particularly in John's Gospel, the love of the Father for the Son is eternally linked with the obedience of the Son to the Father. And Jesus' obedience to his Father culminates in his willingness, his willingness to go to that cross. That's why Jesus is so troubled. As one commentator puts it, the horror of death and the the ardor, the passion of his obedience are meeting together in this moment. What then shall Jesus pray in this moment of horror? Father, glorify your name. Christian, have you ever prayed that in your moment of pain? Father, glorify your name in this. In in my grief, in my fear, in my doubt, in the extremity of my pain. Father, glorify your name. I have have no idea what to do or what's going to happen to me. Give me grace, I pray, so that my preeminent concern throughout this trial might be your glory. Beloved, God's glory always takes precedence. And to quote John Piper, God will be most glorified in our life as we learn to find our satisfaction in him.
right? Our joy in Him, our contentment in Him, trusting in Him. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And this is one of only three times during Jesus' ministry that this happens when God the Father talks to God the Son directly from heaven. Once at Jesus' baptism, you are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Once at his transfiguration, this is my Son whom I love, listen to him. And now here. It's astonishing. Jesus prays, Father, Glorify your name. And then in direct response to Jesus' petition, the Father says, I already have. I have been glorifying my name throughout your whole ministry, Jesus. And I will again at that climactic hour of your glorification, your death and your exaltation. Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. And, and Don Carson notes, even though the crowd did not understand the voice, the very fact that a voice from heaven spoke should have been sufficient to alert those with any spiritual sensitivity that a turning point in redemptive history was impending. And those with ears to hear Jesus' next words as he unpacks the implications of what the voice from heaven said. Consequently, it takes on fresh urgency. And these are the last three verses we're going to be considering this morning. And they are of awesome, awesome significance. The movement of thought here is very important. So let's just trace out where we've come from. Let's just do a bit of a recap, all right? The arrival of these Greek Gentiles in verse 20 has triggered in Jesus' mind the recognition that his appointed hour has arrived. It's the Greeks that do it. And because that hour encompasses the cross, our Lord is filled with revulsion. He's filled with horror, anxiety, agitation. Nevertheless, what's his overall consuming concern? That God the Father glorify his name, even in this hour. In Jesus' prayer, Father, glorify your name. That evokes then an audible response from heaven. And only Jesus can understand the content of what, it was, of what was said. Nevertheless, it serves as a supernatural attestation before the crowd of the transcendent importance of the sequence of events set off by the arrival of these Greeks. So what does it all mean? Hang on to your hats. Jesus now unpacks the significance of these developments. In these next verses, brothers and sisters, Jesus himself gives us a, an exposition on the meaning of his cross. This is from Jesus' point of view. Chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then we have the apostles' explanatory aside. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Friend, look at me in your bulletin at our final point. King Jesus' death, his glorification, will achieve four things. Achievement number one, King Jesus' death will pass judgment on the world. Verse 31, now is the time for judgment on In one sense, of course, uh, judgment is reserved for the end of the age, for the final judgment, judgment day. That day is coming. Uh, but there are texts in John's Gospel and in other places, like Romans 1, for instance, that show us God's judgment against sin has already begun. Uh, the wrath of God is being revealed. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, with my cross, with my death. Which means the cross is simultaneously the glorification of Jesus and the judgment of the world. Both those things in one. 
the glorification of our Lord, and the judgment of the world. It's the throne upon which the King of Kings is crowned. It's his glory. It is also the point of decision for the whole world. Friend, Jesus' cross is either life-giving or it's death-dealing. The place of our salvation or the place of our judgment. Jesus' cross is the decisive dividing line between the condemned and the vindicated. If you trust Jesus, friend, then you are united to him. His death is yours, and his condemnation is your condemnation. You're saved, sin forgiven. His very righteousness imputed to you. If you don't trust in Jesus, you stand condemned both by your sin and by your rejection of the offer of forgiveness. You don't need to wait until Judgment Day to learn your fate. The verdict's already been pronounced. There will be a final judgment, but will only confirm the judgment already passed. Now is the time for judgment on this world. What's the second thing our Lord says his cross achieves? King Jesus' death will drive out the prince of this world, the devil. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That means Jesus' death, which looks like an un, to the unenlightened uh, onlooker, like, a, like, like a, a grand slam victory for Satan, is in fact Satan's utter defeat. In the cross, Satan is driven out. It's exorcism language. Because in his cross, Jesus carries to a conclusion his perfect obedience to his Father's will. It is finished. And thus our Lord smashes the chains of guilt and condemnation with which the evil one has bound the children of Adam since the fall. Jesus' death will drive out the prince of this world. Something to note, too, the adverb now, John uses twice in verse 31. Now is the time for judgment. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. Again, the judgment of the world, the destruction of Satan, the exaltation of the Son of Man, the drawing of men and women from the ends of the earth. We might think of these things as all being reserved for the end times, for some time in the future, at some future date. No, the last days have already begun. It's not that there's nothing reserved for the consummation. It's not that there's nothing reserved for the final day. Rather, the decisive step is about to be taken in Jesus' death. D-Day is the sense. D-Day has arrived, right? And the decisive point in the war has been won, and all that's left now is just a mopping-up operation. Achievement number three. King Jesus' death will exalt and I, when I am lifted up, and you can see in your Bibles the footnote there, exalted. When I am exalted from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Clearly this lifting up, this exaltation, isn't simply six feet above the earth on a cross of wood. Though in a sense, the cross is Jesus' throne. His crucifixion is our Messiah's coronation. Jesus reigns from that cursed tree. But Jesus is not only lifted up on the cross, he is also lifted up. He is exalted to glory. That one word isn't only a picture of the cross, but also of the resurrection and then the ascension to heaven. I mean, the full effect of the hour and the glorification of the Son of Man. King Jesus' death will exalt him. And we'll look at that in future weeks. Finally, achievement number four, the death of Christ, he says, will draw all people to myself. And the promise of a worldwide harvest in John's gospel has already been given. Uh, in, the, in the Samaritans who believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, in the anticipation of the bringing of the other sheep into the fold of God's people, chapter 10, verse 16. And in the Greeks who seek Jesus here in chapter 12, 21, the firstfruits of the whole world who will indeed go after him, 12, 19. And here is the means for that universal harvest 
the lifting up, the exalting of the Son of Man. The critical event in Jesus' ministry that sanctions his drawing of all people to himself is his cross. It's his exaltation. It's his lifting up. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Not all people without exception. We've already seen, back in chapter 10, in Jesus' Good Shepherd discourse, there we saw that those whom God the Father chose for himself in eternity past, he also gave to his son, Jesus. And for those who belong to him, Jesus the Good Shepherd lays down his life. And those for whom Jesus lays down his life, he also calls to himself. Some of us, when we were 10 years old, others at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. And those whom Jesus calls, every one of us hears his voice and we follow him. And those who follow him, he gives, and to those who follow him, he gives eternal life. And those to whom Jesus gives eternal life, they will never be plucked from his hand. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd for eternity. So it's not all people without exception in verse 32. This means all people without distinction. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, rich, poor, gay, straight. I will draw all people to myself. And then John makes an explanatory aside. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Because before glory must come suffering and death. The seed must die. New city, King Jesus came to Jerusalem to die for the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatness of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the majesty of the cross. We thank you that in his dying, his, his willingness to go through the horrible darkness and alienation from you and bearing of your fury for sin that he didn't commit and the willingness to be the substitute and the sacrifice. We thank you that in the cross, Jesus judges the world. Uh, he condemned the arch enemy, the devil, and he has drawn all the redeemed from all of history to himself. What a glorious cross. What a glorious Savior Jesus has indeed been exalted. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.